Well, again, good morning. So glad that you're here with us. I'm Nathan, campus pastor here at the Olathe Campus of Christ Community, and it's wonderful to continue our time together in worship. I love, I love that hymn and sort of leading there, this picture of God's incredible faithfulness, that every single morning we have new mercies promised to us. And we see God's faithfulness no matter, no matter where we look, whether it's in, in Genesis in the Old Testament, as many of us have been reading, whether it's in Romans where we were in December in the New Testament, all over we see God's faithfulness on display. I want to read our, our scripture uh, together for us this morning. You can, you can stay seated. If you, you want to turn there, Genesis 17 is where we're looking this morning. Let me read God's word for us. Genesis 17, beginning with verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now with that last line, that was probably about the, the weakest uh, thanks be to God that we've had, right? This, anytime circumcision comes up, we all get a little bit freaked out. Um, well, we'll get there, okay? Uh, but let's, let's pray together as we look at this text um, and, and we jump into this incredible story of this incredible man named Abraham. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would uh, speak to us uh, this morning as we look at your word. God, I thank you for this, this project that we are endeavoring in together of overviewing your entire word as a church family this year, beginning in gener- Genesis here, God. Just as we looked last week with the, the Garden of Eden and now at this incredible story of Abraham. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that even from these ancient words, these stories that took place so long ago, that we would hear your voice speaking to us today. We ask this for the glory of your Son. Amen. Everyone breaks their promises. Everyone. I mean, how many times, how many times has it happened to you? You're, you're counting on someone, you're depending on them, and it all just falls apart. Husbands do it, wives do it, children, parents, siblings do it, business partners, coworkers, friends, all of us. I mean, honestly, we're liars, every one of us, aren't we? I mean, even if you just sort of think of one sort of area in our lives, uh, the covenant of marriage, one place where we still make these sort of, you know, massive promises to one another. And not only do half of all marriages end in divorce, which is tragic in and of itself, 
But even, even those marriages that succeed, we don't keep all those promises, do we? I mean, just think about it, right? If you're, if you're married, husbands, you promise to always cherish your wife. Not just love her, cherish her. As long as you both shall live. How's that going? Huh? Yeah? And wives, you promise to always respect your husband. Not just, not just love him, but respect him as long as you both shall live. How's that, how's that working out for you? We, we are liars, every one of us, aren't we? And you don't just have to look at that relationship. I mean, just even in our sort of casual dealings with others, we'll, we'll say things that, you know, we kind of mean or kind of don't mean, or, or we won't even think about it. We'll get distracted or busy, and uh, kids, we parents do this often enough. You know, sure, son, I'll, I'll play with you in just a few minutes, I promise. You know, and a few minutes go by, and a few more, and a few more, and then, oh, I'm so sorry I forgot. Just slipped my mind. We don't, we don't even mean to, and yet with each disappointment, we grow together, all of us, a little bit more disillusioned and a little bit more cynical. Everybody breaks their promises. Everyone. Everyone but one. Our God makes outrageous promises, and he keeps them. And just, just think about that for a moment. I mean, again, we're, we're, as, a, as a church, we're, we're on this journey together, right? Looking through this entire story. Um, on Sunday mornings, reading at least a chapter a day. Some of you are reading the whole Bible. Some of us just one chapter a day. But we're, we're tracking through this story. And if you think about, I mean, this is only, right, the end of, of week two, really. Think about where we've been already and how messed up we humans are, okay? I mean, first of all, you know, we saw last week that, that Adam and Eve, they had everything and they chucked it all, right? They rebelled against their creator, that we ourselves, we rebelled against him and made God into our enemy. Shortly after that, we see Abel murdered by his brother. Then humanity grows so terribly violent and hateful that God decides to send a flood and destroy, just to start over. And then, and and we kind of passed over this part quickly, but the, the people who repopulated the earth, they wanted to prove that they didn't really need God. And so they build this tower called Babel. And that's, that's just in the first eight pages. I mean, we humans are messed up. And now in this story, God makes promises to us. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, God who owes us nothing indebts himself to us. Because, I mean, that's, that's really what a promise is, isn't it? It's indebting yourself, willingly indebting yourself to another person. God who owes us nothing says, now I owe you this simply because I promise it. Our God makes outrageous promises and he keeps them. And in a world in which everyone breaks their promise, And we have so few people that we can really rely on, truly count on. We are desperate for someone, for anyone who will not let us down. And here we see a story of a God who keeps his promises. Again, we're in Genesis 17. And we're really just going to focus in on this one tiny moment in the great story of Abraham. You see, in many ways, the promises that that God makes to Abraham, in many ways, he makes these promises as well to us. By faith, we are descendants of Abraham. And the fruit of these promises find their fulfillment in us 
through Christ, even in this ancient, ancient story. And so we're going to see, as we look at this story, we're going to see three things about God's promise. God's promise begins with God. God's promise is our rescue. And God's promise is free, but never cheap. God's promise begins with God. It never begins with us and our need, but always God and his grace, with who he is. And in Genesis 17:1, right, right at the, the start, we see Abram. It says, when Abram was, was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. So we got to do a little background here. I mean, who is this guy, Abram? You know, some of us may be familiar, some of us not. I mean, we'll see in a moment that his name gets changed to Abraham. That's probably how we, we know him best. But, but who is this guy, really? Well, essentially, I mean, he is the, the first of the Jewish people in many ways. And, and therefore, the top branch in the family tree of Jesus. That's, that's sort of how we find, as followers of Jesus, connection into this great story. And in many ways, it all starts with the promises God makes to this one man. And Genesis is mostly about Abraham and his family. It sort of tracks his story in the beginning of God's promises, finding their fulfillment in him. In chapter 12, for example, if we were to look back there, you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 12, God first appears to Abram, and he really, he chooses Abram, and he promises Abram. He says, essentially, Abram, my rescue plan, all that I have in store for humanity, it's going to come through your family, through your descendants. I'm going to do my thing through you which is pretty cool, right? Okay, I mean, it must have been a good moment for, for Abram in his life, and he leaves the, the land that he knew and, and charts off this, this new course by faith. One problem, though, right? If you know this story, Abram at that point, he's already 75 years old, and he and his wife Sarah have been unable to have children. Absolutely unable. I mean, some of you know the pain of what that, that feels like, and so here we have these promises that God has made to this in, interesting couple, Abram and Sarai. Twelve years pass. That's a long time, right? Waiting desperately. And they get a little impatient. And so they do what is normal social custom in that day, even though it's so strange to us. Sarai gives Abram her servant, and he gets her pregnant instead. They take matters into their their own hands. Abram believes God, but he gets more than a little bit impatient. In fact, if we were to look at his whole story, we know Abram is far from perfect. In fact, that tends to be the people that God chooses, right? We see that because we're all far from perfect. Another 13 years go by. In between the, the time when, when Ishmael is born and by, time, and by the time God finally shows up once again. 25 years in total. I mean, if at 75 God's promises seemed impossible, at 99 they just seemed kind of cruel. Waiting. I mean, did God change his mind? Did he find somebody else? Did I do something wrong? What What happened? And then in 17.1, at 99 years old, God once again just 
shows up in Abram's life. And it says there, 17.1, again, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant, my promise between me and you and may multiply you greatly. He shows up and he tells Abram who he is. I, just, I love that in, in this story. I mean, God's promise begins with God. It doesn't become, begin with our faith or our obedience or anything good within us. It begins with who God is. God simply shows up in his life. I mean, he's always been there, even in the silence, even in the darkness. But here, after 25 years, and after 13 years of what seemed like silence, absolute silence from God, he shows up. I mean, the God who created this world is the God who calls his people. And kind of in some ways, it reminds me a little bit of of Adam and Eve, their relationship with God in the garden. That here in their lives, just as as God would show up with Adam and Eve and whatever that looked like, here God shows up with Abram. And he tells him who he is. He says, I am God Almighty. He reveals himself to Abram. God Almighty. The Hebrew uh, construction there is El Shaddai. That's, that's kind of the, the, the Hebrew words there. And it, it implies all this the strength and the power and the might, which is which, why it's translated Almighty. But it, it means so much more than that. In fact, uh, linguists aren't really sure exactly what to make of Shaddai. I mean, El just means God, so that's the easy part. But what is, what is Shaddai really getting at here? And sure, it's power and might and all that, but it also sort of includes this idea of sufficiency. I, I love that, especially in this, in this context, this, this story that, that God says to Abram, Abram who is insufficient, who, who is unable as a family to produce children with his wife, Sarah. He says, you want to know who I am, Abram? I am God-sufficient. I am, I am the God who is enough. I am God enough. I have everything that you possibly need. Do you trust me? It's interesting. One commentator writes this about El Shaddai. He says, It's always used in connection with promises of descendants. Shaddai evokes the idea that God is able to make the barren fertile and to fulfill his promises. Abram, because I am El Shaddai, because I am the God who is enough, you will have a child. God's promises always begin with God. Always. I mean, you and I, we are never the main characters of of this book. I mean, this book, certainly it reveals a lot about who we are, but it's not about us. It is about a God who makes outrageous promises but promises that always begin with who he is rather than who we are. And I mean, if you think about it, aren't you thankful for that? That God's promises are always rooted in his character and not mine? But God makes these promises. And because he is El Shaddai, almighty, sufficient, enough, we can trust him. So what does El Shaddai promise Abram? Well, essentially, he promises our rescue. 
our redemption, our, our renewal, all there in that moment that essentially, Abram, through you, I will rescue my children. Through you, there, there is hope that the cataclysm of the fall and the, the seeming victory of the serpent will not have the last word. Through one of your great, 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 great grandchildren, Abram, I will make all things new. Now, it's not quite as clear in the way that God says it to him. We're looking back over, you know, 4,000 years of redemptive history to be able to understand how God's promises reach fulfillment. But look, look what God says in, in verse 3. He says, Behold my covenant, my promise is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Not just one nation, okay? Many, lots. Abram means something like, his name Abram, means something like exalted father. And I just got to think about that. What, what must that name have been like for him? For 99 years, being called father, exalted father, and being unable to have children. I mean, what a source of constant shame that must have, especially in a world in which everything was about your ability to produce descendants, heirs. And then God changes it to Abraham, which again, linguists believe it probably rhymes with the words for father of multitudes. It's kind of a play on words that God is doing. But he still doesn't have any kids, Right? I mean, in some ways, it's, it's sort of like if, if you had a son and you named him Tall, okay? And then you find out that he's going to be five foot two. And so then you change his name to Super Tall. I mean, it's like, well, thanks. Thanks, that's great. I, you know, I, thanks a lot, right? I mean, what, what, what is happening here? How can God do that? Well, look how he continues his promises. In verse 6, God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Remember the command back in Genesis was be fruitful and multiply. And God says, I'm going I'm to make you fruitful, exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And the father of kings, he says. And I promise you and all of your children after you, all of your descendants, every generation that follows, that I will give you a land, the promised land. And I will be your God. Again, if we are understanding, if we're tracking the story, think about what God is doing here. Adam and Eve had a land. It was called Eden. And they blew it. And God pushed them out of the garden. He had to. And now God is saying that you, through you, Abraham, you're going to have a land again. It's not going to be Eden, but it's going to be great. And I'm going to promise that to you. And, and Adam and Eve, I mean, they had perfect relationship with God and perfect intimacy with him and, and worship and tr- all the transcendence, everything that they could possibly hope for, but they lost that in the fall when they chose him. But God says, Abram, Abraham, through you, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be God again to all of your people. And you will know me and they will know me and they will seek me. This is what I'm doing. And Abram, 
Abraham, all of these things, I promise. And they're going to come through you, through your descendants, and through the people who come after you. I will give it all back, all that was lost in the fall. And God, he doesn't, he doesn't promise wealth or comfort or, or good health. He doesn't say everything's going to be easy. You're just going to be happy all of your days. I mean, the world is still fallen, and we still live in a broken world. But he does promise to be our God once more, and he's going to use Abraham to get us there. This promise is for our rescue. Well, how? Well, if we were to fast forward through Abraham's life, I mean, we'd see it there, and if we were to, to, to go through the, the entire Old Testament into the New Testament, even into our own lives, we would see that God keeps his promises. Abraham has Isaac Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has many sons that that provide the the 12 tribes for the nation of Israel. A nation. And through their line, there'd be kings like David and Solomon and Hezekiah. But many nations? Forever? Well, how is that possible? Well, in Jesus, it's possible. Only in Jesus is it possible. And I certainly doubt that Abraham knew all that, right, when he's receiving these promises, or even that, that Moses, right, hundreds of years later, as he's writing these words down for us, that, that he understood all of what was happening in this moment, in these promises. But as we look back throughout redemptive history, it's clear Jesus is the king that Abraham was looking for, the king in Abraham's line. I mean, even Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, Begins with these words, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the king, the son of Abraham. And that's how this promise could be true forever in Jesus. And many nations, how does that work out? Well, it says also in the New Testament later on in the book of Romans, it says that Abraham is the father of all who believe. Even without being circumcised, Paul says. So that's non-Jews is the idea. Gentiles are included. So that righteousness could be counted to us as well. Because I'm not I'm not Jewish. I don't belong in Abraham's family. And yet I have faith in one of Abraham's kings. And through him I am one of Abraham's many sons from many nations. And kids, some of you probably know the, the song. I think you sing it sometimes downstairs. You know, Father Abraham had many sons. Anybody? Okay. Nobody knows that one. We could, we could get up and do it, but we'll pass. And it goes on. I am one of them, so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. Well, I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous song because you start shaking your arms and your legs and all that stuff. But the idea there is that we are, we who have no place in this family whatsoever, if we have faith in Jesus, this particular descendant of Abraham, then we are brought into this incredible family. I mean, do you see how outrageous God's promise to Abraham is? I mean, do you see how important it is for us that God keep his promise to Abraham? I mean, God's promise 4,000 plus years ago to this Middle Eastern shepherd named Abraham is a promise to rescue us. And friends, God is telling one story in this book. 
Only one. I mean, sometimes it feels like lots of little stories if we jump around or lots of little commands or various things, but it's, it's one story. It's the story of a God who will rescue his people and he will do it through his son. We see it on page 11 in my Bible and when we get to 1,011, it'll be the same. God makes outrageous promises and he keeps them. And then third, his promises are free, but they're not cheap. Because Abraham has a choice here, doesn't he? And at this point, you can just say, you know what, I'm kind of old, and, you know, this whole deal is just not, it's not for me, right? I mean, he's, he's got some say in this, in this matter. Thanks, but no thanks, God. We'll just move on. Find somebody else. God's promise then and his promise now always demands a response. And the response he's looking for is always the same. Always. Old and New Testaments. Because there's nothing that Abraham Abraham could possibly do to to earn this promise, to be good enough or to to somehow figure it out on his own. God's promise is absolutely free. But it's not cheap. God requires a response. Which really, if you think about it, just makes sense. I mean, promises, real promises change us, don't they? I mean, if you really believe in it, if they're, they're a big enough promise, we're different as a result of the promise. I, mean, I think back, I mean, one easy example is, you know, uh, about 11, 12 years ago, Kelly could correct me on this, you know, sitting on a, a beach on Lake Michigan in the fall one evening, I asked her to marry me. That, that was a promise. And in ways in which I'm still surprised, she said, yes. But imagine if it had just sort of stopped there. That was it. All right, I agree to marry you. I agree to marry you. Good. Nothing ever happened, right? It'd be ridiculous. Uh, but instead, when, when that promise was made, it, it unleashed a whole slew of activity, all the, the wedding plans, not just wedding plans, but how are we going to live? Where are we going to live? What is our life together actually going to look like? To make those plans without the promise would be hasty at best, if not a complete waste of time, because you don't have the promise. But the reverse is also true. To make that promise and to actually believe it and then to do nothing about it? No plans, no dates. It would make the promise absolutely meaningless. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be anything. Promises change us. Promises always demand a response in us. And one of the best summaries of the response that God is looking for came right at the start of our passage Right there, back in verse 1, sort of this summary statement as God reveals himself. God said, if you remember, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. What does God want from Abraham? What does he want from us? Same thing he's always wanted. He wants us to walk before him and to be whole, to be blameless. It's two commands right there in the text. Walk before me. God says. Just like Adam and Eve used to back in the garden, naked and unashamed. I mean, literally, it says, walk in my face is the, is the language there. Don't hide anymore. I mean, the way of Adam after he ate the fruit, hiding, ashamed, fearful, it just doesn't suit you. Walk in my face. This is kind of the kind of intimacy that we were created for. 
That we were created to, to walk every step, to think every thought, to do every deed before the, the presence of our loving and gracious creator, knowing that he is watching, that he would be the one we'd strive to please, that his would be the opinion that matters, that he would be the audience that is most important in our lives. And I just can't help but wonder how much energy I spend trying to please every other audience in my life, but the one that really matters. Walk before me, he says. And if we walk before him, if he truly is our main audience, I mean, that implies that we would obey him. That, that something would, would change within us. And even in verse 10, uh, God gets to that as he's talking to Abram, Abraham. Verse 10, God says, This is my covenant, my promise, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. I mean, God says, you, you got to keep my covenant. Okay, you gotta, you got to keep your end of the promise to some extent here. You must obey me. And just to make sure Abram, Abraham knows how serious God is, it says, Every male among you, must be circumcised. It's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, I mean it's, uh, it's like, how did that get into the conversation? All of a sudden, they're talking about, you know, having these offspring and what God is going to do. And it's like, oh, and by the way, you need to be circumcised. And it seems like, too, even as we've looked at the Bible, God just sort of keeps up in the ante. I mean, he tells Adam, don't, don't eat that piece of fruit. He tells Noah, build me a boat. He tells Abraham, cut off part of your, you know, I <laughs> Can I just build you two boats? I mean, I'll give up all fruit or whatever, pork. And parents, parents, uh, or, or kids rather, kids, okay? If you don't know what circumcision is, talk, ask your parents on the way home, okay? And, uh, and parents, parents, you're welcome, you know? <laughs> Something to talk about. Some of you, if we just had more to talk about. Well, now you've got a topic, so enjoy it. Okay, so, so why, why circumcision? I mean, it's just, it's just, I mean, let's just be honest, okay? We're, we're, we're 4,000 years removed from this culture, but why that? Because he does it, right? He and his whole household, they go out that very day. I mean, it's like, well, okay, let's, let's get this done. They don't even hesitate, but why? Well, circumcision wasn't unheard of in that day. Uh, it wasn't done as an entire race of people, which it would become with the, the Jewish faith, um, that, you know, as an entire group. It was done occasionally in that society as sort of a ritual of purification or to be sort of set apart. Um, I mean, it's irreversible. It would serve a daily reminder of whatever promise you made to God. Uh, and, I mean, there's just, there's no more intimate way sort of physically to, to exemplify that. But even think about what this symbol sort of means for this whole idea of what God's promising. And this just intrigues me so much. I mean, God is making promises for offspring. And rather than Abraham going and doing the one thing that might actually make that happen, he goes off and he literally cuts God's promise into that part of his body. And yeah, it makes us squeamish, okay? It makes us a little uncomfortable. But what an incredible picture of this this trust in the promises of God to do that to one's own body in light of the circumstances in which he is found. And yet, it's an incredible picture of what it means to walk in the presence of God. 
For Abraham to, Abraham to say, there is, God, there's nothing off limits in my life. Not a single thing, not a single part of me that you can't have. It is all yours. So much so that, yeah, you asked to do that. Let's, let's do it. God owns everything in his life. And he walks before him. Well, how about us? Now, the New Testament makes it clear that, that circumcision is now unnecessary as a symbol of our faith. We have a new symbol. It's baptism. Some of you are afraid of baptism, but consider the alternative. This isn't so bad. And the New Testament also talks about the fact that we now, as the Holy Spirit living within us, we have a new circumcision, a circumcision that cuts us to our very hearts, one that changes us from the inside out rather than the other way around. But God still expects us to walk in his face, to walk before him. And so I've got, to, I've got to ask myself, we've got to ask ourselves, I mean, is my life truly an open book before him? Are there a few chapters I just prefer he didn't read? Or they didn't, didn't want to sort of allow him to start calling the shots in? And the people that you try to please, the people that I try to please, the things that we, that we focus, I mean, who, whose opinion matters most? I mean, we're so consumed, I'm so consumed by what other people think of me. How does that affect the way that we view the way God thinks of us? And and the very fact, I mean, God is always watching, right? And whether you believe it or not, whether you walk before him or not, he is always watching you. But do you walk consciously knowing that you are in his presence? And does that thought fill you with shame? Or fill you with joy? Knowing that you get to walk in the presence of your gracious creator. That's, that's what God is, is calling us to. And I know we all struggle this, with this. I mean, this is, I mean, I've shared some of this before. I mean, every time I come up here, this is a struggle for me. Being a pastor is a weird thing. I hope, I hope you see that. I hope you don't think I'm weird, although maybe a little bit. It's just kind of a strange thing that, that weekly I get up here and of all the people here, right, I have to consciously strive that my audience the opinion who's re- who really matters are the one set of eyes in this congregation that I can't see. That's the opinion that matters. And so I could, I could try, and sometimes I'm tempted, you know, I could try to just be sort of funny or cute or, or say inoffensive things, right? Or just say things that make people like me. That is a daily temptation for me, and sometimes I blow it. But we all struggle with that, don't we? Who are we going to please? Whose eyes really matter in our life? And do we walk before him? And then God says, it's not just walk before me. Then he says, and be whole. Or blameless is probably what it's translated in your, in your Bibles. It's the Hebrew word tome, which the most literal translation is just be whole. Be whole. Don't just walk before me, Abraham. Not even with all the obedience that you can muster. Abraham, you need to be whole. And this word tome, it's one of my favorites. Tome. Uh, it conjures up these images of, of the garden, of the way life, the life we were created for, of, of rest and, and peace, all the, the shalom and the Shabbat that we, we long for deep within, this, this wholeness. I think if, if we're, we long to be whole, we know that we're, our lives tend to be fragmented and shattered. We long for this wholeness. And God says, walk before me and be whole. 
We talk a lot about that word tome and, and our razor's path, pathway. Some of you are very familiar with that, right? And, and it's our discipleship thing that we do together to, to, to study and to grow. And tome is a big part of that. And so some of you know, tome is not about the things that you do. It's about who you are. It's, it's being overdoing. I mean, not that, not that our doing isn't important. Our actions are absolutely important, but they've got to begin deep within us in this wholeness that God instills in us and that he instills in us through faith. He's not telling Abraham to do everything perfectly. Abraham made lots of mistakes. Some of them are really big mistakes. But deep within, God is making him whole. And we live that wholeness out in the presence of God in everything that we do. Are you whole? Or more, maybe, how whole are you? Is God in that process in your life, deep within you, bringing about this wholeness that we were created for? I mean, we long for that. But we can only experience this kind of wholeness, the thing that God requires from us most, through faith. If we were to look a couple chapters back in the story of of Genesis, and Paul makes a big deal in the New Testament about the fact that this happened before Abram took that step of faith in circumcision, that step of obedience. In Genesis 15, it says that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul, again, in Romans chapter 4, he says that those words weren't written for Abraham. They were written for us. That we who believe can be counted righteous before our God. That through trust, through faith, that this is what leads to our wholeness, to, to being blameless. And trust is what wraps all of this together. This is, what, this is how our hearts are transformed. This is how we walk before the God who is enough with wholeness. It's a thing that God has always wanted for us and from us. And it's the only way that his rescue plan comes to life within us. And what good is a promise if we don't trust it? God makes outrageous promises and he keeps them. But it gets even better because as we said, God upholds his end of the bargain through Jesus. We said that already, right? That Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises in Abraham's life. That, that Jesus is the king that Abraham looked for. He's, he's the savior that Abraham needed because of all of his mistakes. Abraham's not the hero of the story. He needed a hero to save him, just as we do. And that Jesus is the, the one that, that promises to, to give us a land like Eden and a family like theirs and a God like we were created for. All of that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Even though we've rebelled against God, that's his promise. Our rescue. If we walk before him and be whole. If we obey, if we trust. And this is where it gets a little bit scary. Because as I look at my life, I feel half whole at best. And my trust is weak. My obedience is insufficient. And if I'm honest, a lot of times I don't like walking in front of God. And yet at the same time, I'm desperate for these promises. I'm desperate for them to be true, and I'm desperate for them to be true of me. And here is the best part. 
On this side of the cross, we understand this. Not only does God keep his end of the promise through Jesus, God keeps our end of the promise through Jesus. Because of Jesus, all of my faults, all of my failures to to live as he commanded, Jesus paid the penalty for all of those, and instead I am given his righteousness, his wholeness, all that has been declared on me, so now I can walk before God because I have nothing to fear. God loves me and accepts me, and I'm not just Abraham's child. I am God's child, and we can obey because we've been circumcised in the heart, and we we can learn to obey as we seek to follow him, and, and we can trust because... Look at God's track record in coming through for his promises. I mean, how can we not trust him? He's already given us his son. What else could we possibly lack? In him, we are made whole. Everybody lies. It is hard to trust anyone. We have been let down way too many times, but God has been making promises for thousands of years. Promises to rescue his people. And he will do it through his son. Outrageous promises, but he keeps them. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, both on God's end and on ours. And he, Jesus, will never let us down. And if that's true, then we can say, thanks be to God. And what's left for us? Just trust. Dependence on this God who rescues. Do you trust him? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, We thank you that you are, even here, in ways that boggle our mind, ways that Abraham couldn't have possibly understood, or or even probably Moses as he wrote these words down for us, you are the center of this promise, that you fulfill God's end and ours, and we rejoice. And we thank you that this life is, is given to us simply through faith and dependence on you. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that we together, all of us here, would give our lives to you. Some maybe for the first time, others of us as a way of continually saying, Lord Jesus, you are the one we want to follow. Help us in that. God, we thank you for calling this man. This ordinary guy who trusted you and that you, through your grace, allowed your promises to begin their fulfillment. And we trust, Lord, that you will continue to work those promises in us for the glory of your Son. Amen.